0: back to the Talbots there in the back to go to Children's Church, or you can go on back to your parents. Amen. Thank you, Stuart. Um, We'll talk about that Snickers bar later. Well, good morning. Yes, you can go back that way, though. Go ahead. How exactly do you recover from that? (laughs) Better now than later, I suppose. Um, Welcome uh, again. So glad uh, that you are here uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to to turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, If you have the same Bible as me, it's on page 1377. If not, can't help you, but hopefully your neighbor can. Uh, We are considering an amazing, amazing text this morning. Uh, We'll look at verses uh, 14 through 18. I'm sure you've probably heard uh, the expression, Familiarity breeds contempt which is to say the more familiar you are with something the less you are captivated by it you start to get bored with something that that used to amaze you it's possible that i'm describing to you how you feel about christmas and i get it okay the commercial commercialization and the overflow of that has been bombarding you since September though I did reach out to a friend, uh, Robert Turner who some of you know uh, who tracks each year the first sighting of Christmas themed things. And he said this year uh, at Costco it was the end of July. And so so so. Christmas has been coming at you in in commercialized form since July, and inevitably, that can lead us to to the wrong motivation for celebrating Christmas, where Christmas becomes what you can give, what you can get, while also breeding familiarity, because you see it every day. But here's the thing what took place at Christmas, is so utterly mind-blowing and important that we need to learn to love the familiar. And chances are you've read the passage that I'm to preach this morning maybe even hundreds of times. And, and maybe you've even heard many sermons from John 1:14 to 14-18. So it may be easy for you to sit there and think, you know what, I've heard this one before. Start to drift into a daydream about lunch. The stockings hung by the chimney with care. Or maybe all of the things left on your to-do list before Christmas. But let me encourage you not to do that. And not because I think what I'm going to say will be so captivating and so well said but because what God has said in this passage that we consider this morning is eternally significant and stunning. Christmas and and, and all that we celebrate in the coming of Christ is utterly astounding. Granted, it is likely familiar, but may our familiarity breed not contempt, but newfound wonder That God the Son came to us. And so even as we just begin this morning, let's take some time to pray to that end. Would you join me? Father, we are so thankful. Firstly, that we can gather here this morning. Secondly, that together we can come before you because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're also thankful, God, that we can consider a passage from your word that I'm sure to many is familiar. But God, I I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. That you would uh, help us, God, To be so captivated by the account of what you have done for us in Christ. That we would go away from this place, even with with a newfound joy. In the fact that that God the Son has come to us. We pray and ask God that you would give us um, good attention spans. That you would give us ears to hear. You would help us to be attentive to your word and that through your spirit you would help us, God, to hear your word, but not just hear it, but to do it. And so, God, we we pray these things that, that you would do them for our good, for your glory, and that you would help us, God, to increase our faith, that you would guide our understanding, that you would give us kingdom thoughts, and that you would lead us to spiritual joy. Through Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I'll be reading from John chapter 1. Start in verse 14. We'll read through verse 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. The Word of the Lord. As is my custom, I like to give you a main point. I like to to be as clear about what I think the passage says and what it is that I'm going to try to communicate to you this morning uh, you have these blanks in your bulletin. It will be on the screen in front of you in case you uh, don't follow along verbally. But, but what I want to communicate this morning is that Jesus reveals the glory of God because He is God. And by His coming to earth, we come to know what God is like. And that is full of grace. And, and if I could add further which I only came up with after the bulletin was printed, so sorry about that. I would add that there is only one way to know what God is like. And that one way is through Jesus. And so we should listen to Him. So, so there's only one way to know what God is like through Jesus. We should listen to Him. So you see in, in verses 14 to eighteen it, it tells us of the self revelation of God that has taken place through a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. and so if, if we could even just at the outset maybe even have some sort of application, may it be that we would not take for granted that we know anything about God. Because do you realize that that God did not have to reveal himself? And yet he did. And so it it is a great kindness of God that we know anything about him. So may we stand in awe of him with wonder and amazement as we consider how he made himself known in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's look at our passage under two headings. This is also in your bullets, and You'll see it in, on the screen. The first heading will be that Jesus is God. The second will be that Jesus is full of grace. We'll start with verses 14 and 15, considering first that Jesus is God. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, And truth. Now, what an amazing verse. The word, the Lord Jesus Christ, took to him himself the very flesh he spoke into being. The God who created entered his creation. And and this this is the amazing reality of Christmas. But I think there are some questions that we need to ask about this verse to help us understand it more. There will be five questions specifically. Firstly, we need to know who does John mean by the word? Well, we don't have to guess at at who John means. He tells us in the opening verses. So look at verses uh, 1 to 5 with me in in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word is none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these opening verses of John are astonishing In in so few words, John proclaims amazing truths. Truths that are central to the message of Christianity and necessary for salvation. John 1-5 tells us, among other things, that Jesus is God. And so that means that that because Jesus is God, there was never a time when the Son did not exist. Echoing the opening verses of Genesis, John shows that the Word, Jesus, existed eternally. That is, He never came into being. He was always one with the Father. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. From this, we learn that there is one who is equal to the Father who is not the Father. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And and so the Son is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. But further in verse 3, John tells us that Jesus created everything. And and this blows out of the water both the Mormon and Jehovah's Witness conception of who Jesus is. Both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would, would say that Jesus is a created being. But if we read this text correctly as it has been interpreted through the history of the church, we come to the conclusion that Jesus is the uncreated creator. He's not the archangel Michael and he's not the spirit brother of Lucifer. And and this is absolutely crucial for us to understand before moving on because if we get this wrong, thinking Jesus is anything less than God, we do not have the true Saving Jesus. And that's why we continue to pray for Sharon, who's been deceived into believing a false created Christ. And, and so we pray for her, but we also we also think of ourselves and, and say, may we never be deceived in believing. That Jesus is something less than God. May may we never have too low a conception of of who Jesus is. That's the importance of this passage. We get to see who Jesus is in all His fullness. In line with verses 4 and 5 then, John explains that Jesus is the source of life. This refers both to the creative power of God in that it was through Jesus that the Father created, as well as that Jesus is the source of spiritual life, which we see explained further in verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, "...but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the source of our spiritual life. So, who is this Word? The eternally existing, co-equal to the Father, Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second question, then, is what does it mean that, that the Word became flesh? Sometimes when we talk about God, Uh, the best that we can do is say what he is not. And so when we, uh, for instance, say that God is immutable, what we're saying is God does not change. And if you think about it, we're not really saying a whole lot. We don't really learn anything about what God does do when we say he does not change. And I think it's similar when we come to verse 14, that the same thing is true. That, that in order for, under, for us to understand what this text does mean, we need to understand what it does not mean. This verse does not mean that the Son, as God, came into existence in the womb of Mary. When John writes the Word became flesh, he, he's not teaching us that, that, that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary as the second person of the Trinity coming into being. Rather, he's showing that the eternally existent Christ took to himself a human nature and became like what he created. The other thing that it does not mean is that in taking flesh to himself, he stopped being God. When Jesus took on flesh, the infinite Eternal second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature in in such a way that he was God and man at the same time. And just because Jesus was a baby lying in a manger does not mean that the Son stopped holding up the universe by the word of his power. If you're reading through the Advent devotional that we put together, uh, you could hear how Matt McDermott, one of our elders, explained this idea. In the December 8th devotional, he said Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He was not 50% God and 50% man. No, he is 100% God and 100% man. So, So when Jesus took on flesh, it did not change the fact that he was God. The, the, the truth of the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, is that he is truly God and truly man, two natures united in, in one glorious person. But why does this matter? This matters not just now at the Christmas season when, when we focus on the event that took place in history, but it matters for our everyday lives. See, the wonder of the Incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh without losing anything of what He always was, means that our greatest need can be met. As we consider the glory of God and see who He is, we must also at the same time realize who we are. We are sinners separated from God in need of restoration and forgiveness. The message of Christmas... The message of the incarnation is that we don't have to work our way to God because He came to us. See, you and I do not have what it takes to close the separation that exists between us and God. But since Jesus, who is truly God, came to us as truly man, the gap was closed. The Lord Jesus came and lived among us as one who was God and man at the same time in one person. And, and what a glorious thing it is that the Lord Jesus has come to us and lived among us. That's exactly what John goes on to explain in the next part of the verse. Where he says, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us." This is the third question that I think we should ask from the text. What does it mean that the Word became flesh... And dwelt among us. You see, the promise of Christmas is the presence of God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus dwelt among us. And you may have a footnote or a cross reference or something in your Bible that further explains that word dwelt. Instead of dwelt, we could read it, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You see, that that word choice is intentional on behalf of John inspired by the Spirit. It's it's meant to bring to mind the presence of God among His people in the Old Covenant. In the past, God was present among His people in, in the tabernacle and in the temple. God dwelt uniquely in those places. But what John explains here is that the presence of God among His people is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this means that God dwells with His people in a personal way. That is, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So so you may even be wondering, not only at Christmas time, but, but throughout the year, how exactly do I experience the presence of God? If you want to experience the presence of God, it will only take place... Through the one who has come to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and if you're wondering, how, how does that presence continue with us today? Because didn't he ascend into heaven? Well, yes, he did. And that's a great question. I'm so glad that you're asking it this morning. And in order for you to find the answer to that, I would direct you to a, a sermon from our YouTube page titled, The Promised Presence of God, preached a year ago, twelve twenty six. Uh, where I trace the theme of the presence of God in the Gospel of Matthew. In case you don't want to go watch that, in sum, basically what I said, the Father sent the Son. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But then, as promised, when, when Jesus ascended, together with the Father, He sent the Spirit to live within us. And so now the abiding presence of the risen Christ, is within you if you have placed your faith in Him. And so though Jesus is no longer present with us on earth, no lo- His body is no longer here, He is with us. He is Emmanuel still by the Spirit until we go to be with Him for eternity. The fourth question from verse 14 we need to answer, is what does it mean that we have seen His glory? In the Old Testament, the glory of God is uniquely connected to the presence of God. Consider these verses. I have, I have two. There are plenty more uh, that we could uh, address. Exodus chapter 33, verse 22. Probably also a familiar scene. It says this, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Numbers 14.10 Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. When we see the glory of God, we, we have the presence of God among us. And, and both of these passages, and, and many others that we could consider, connect the glory of God with the presence of God among His people. However, every single one of those instances was temporary. You see the difference with the presence of Jesus... The presence of Emmanuel, God with us, is that it is permanent by the Spirit and eternal in heaven. Listen to, to Revelation 21, verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God Himself will be with them as their God. John is also the author of Revelation. And he uses the same word, dwell, tabernacle, in both places to show us that there is an enduring fellowship between God and His people because Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. So how is it that we are, we are able to be brought into His eternal presence? Because the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us reveals His glory as the only Son from the Father. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if this is obvious to say, but, but the glory of God can only be revealed by someone who is God. And remember... Jesus is God. And so by his presence, as as he reveals the glory of God, he is revealing the glory of God as God. So we see his glory in his life and his ministry as written in the pages of Scripture. So do you want to see the glory of God? Read how Jesus lived and know him in Scripture. We see that further in the final phrase of verse 14. We look at the fifth question from this verse. What does it mean that this word is full of grace and truth? I think this is just another way that John shows us that Jesus is God. The words grace and truth parallel the words used to describe the nature of God in the Old Testament. Love and faithfulness. So, for instance, in in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we read, "...the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, "...the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. See, John uses words that connect directly to that passage. Grace and truth put on display the divine goodness of the Lord Jesus. Just as when God revealed himself to Moses, saying he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, John says of Jesus that He is full of, or abounding in, grace and truth. So, so the love and faithfulness of God has found its ultimate expression in the sending of the Son for us and for our salvation. That Jesus is full of grace and truth shows us Jesus is God because He possesses all that God has. And so we need to know that Jesus is not less than God. He is God. And, and verse 15 acts as a narrative insertion to give further evidence that Jesus is God. The words John records are from the lips of John the Baptist. So we've got two Johns here. He says, He who comes after me is before me. And, and I think this has two meanings. One, John, John the Baptist is older than Jesus. And if you read the Christmas story, you'll see, you know, Zechariah um, prophesying of his son, John the Baptist. He, he, Elizabeth is pregnant with John. Uh, the baby leaps in his mother's womb when Mary comes. And, and that's taking place. The conception of, of John takes place before the conception of Jesus. John the Baptist is older than Jesus. One of the meanings of this. Secondly, it shows that John the Baptist um, came... To prepare the way of the Lord. This Lord ranks before John the Baptist because he was before him. It is John the Baptist is confessing the pre existence of the Christ, showing who he is, which is God. So the one, the one he speaks of is eternal and has preeminence over John the Baptist, who even w- was the greatest. Uh, and the last of the Old Testament prophets. And and I think verses 14 and 15 uh, work together to show us who Jesus is. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you're aware of the, the so-called uh, war on Christmas. It's not a battle over um, how you spell Emmanuel. Is it with an I or is it with an E? I think it's an I, but it, neither here nor there. The war on Christmas is this idea of, of keep Christ in Christmas. I wrote briefly about it in our Advent devotional, December 4th, if you'd like to keep it out. But I think it bears repeating. Because I think for several years now, many people have been up in arms about keeping Christ in Christmas. Now, I agree entirely with that message. But what I'm more concerned about is that we know the Christ of Christmas. See, see, keeping Christ in Christmas is not simply a matter of, of what we call the holiday or how we share good tidings with others in this season. It's more importantly about knowing who Christ is. About knowing the Christ of Christmas. If we keep Christ in Christmas, but don't know who Christ is, you better believe we are worse off by far. But praise God. Because we can know who Jesus is. We can know the Christ of Christmas. Because He has revealed Himself to us as the One who is far and above all things. And when we see the Lord Jesus as who He is, the Word became flesh who dwelt among us. When we see Him as God, we worship Him as Supreme. So we're thankful that God has revealed himself to us. May we never become bored by that. May that never become so familiar that, that, that we start to, to, to just think, oh, this is, I don't need to hear this again this year. We do. Our second point this morning, we've already seen that Jesus is God. Next, we will see Jesus is full of grace. Look at verse 16 with me. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In Jesus, God's glory has come to the earth in all its fullness. And from this fullness, we receive grace upon grace. Because Jesus is full of grace and truth, He is able to give out of His abundance. John even tells us some of the grace that, that, that we've been given. He pictures the law as one of those graces, as the law is meant to point us to Jesus. The law shows us how short we fall of God's standards. And, and helps us know more of the character of God. And, and we should never treat the Old Testament as something that is unnecessary. We should never treat it as something that we need to unhitch from. We should see it as God's grace to us. God was gracious to reveal Himself to His people and and tell them what He requires. But there's something better than even the grace of the law. That something better is the one the law points to. It's Jesus. Jesus came as grace on top of grace already poured out. And, and when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the cre- clearest revelation of God was seen. But not only that, because He was truly God and truly man, when He fulfilled the law, He gave His perfect righteousness to us. So that it would, could be applied to us by faith. Because as God, He, he fulfills the law, but as man, he, he allows that to be shared with our humanity. What we have in the covenant Christ mediates is better than every good thing that came before it. It's so good in fact that it brings to an end what was. On top of the grace that was given in the law of Moses, Jesus adds even more grace. Grace that comes from His fullness of being. And in this verse we see again the words grace and truth, which connects us to how God was revealed in the Old Testament. Grace and truth connects us to faithfulness and love. These are covenant words showing that God's covenant faithfulness reaches its pinnacle in the sending of the Son to this earth. And I think the final verse wraps all of this up for us. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Moses, who is the one through whom God gave the law, saw God's back and God had to protect him when he did that. Exodus 34.10 also, also says of Moses that God spoke to him face to face. And so this, this is simply an expression because God does not have a body. It's an expression used to communicate intimacy and closeness. But do you, do you know what could be closer than the intimacy that Moses experienced? If the only God who is at the Father's side made God known. See, Jesus is God. And so in His coming to earth, He makes God known. So much so, that Jesus will go on to say, as recorded in John 12.45, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. That is closer than than the intimacy and closeness that Moses experienced. Humans are are unable to see God in His fullness. But but Jesus Christ, the the one and only Son, who is Himself God, has revealed God the Father in a way that Moses and the law never could. Jesus makes God known. Why? Why? Because He is God. Jesus reveals the glory of God because He is God. And, and by His coming to earth, we can know what God is like, full of grace and truth. So if you want to know God, listen to Jesus. And I think, I think for this reason, for, for the fact that, that, that Jesus came to this earth, it's good for us to see Christmas as the most wonderful time of the year. We get to pause and think about Jesus being sent to this earth by the Father to accomplish redemption. You want to know something amazing? The good news of Christmas, the good news of Christmas, God the Son coming to this earth, taking on flesh. That's true no matter how you feel. Because I, I don't want to take for granted that, that many of you here this morning are hurting. Many of you are, are sick. Many of you are, are worn out and tired. And are just not in the Christmas spirit, whatever that is. But guess what? God revealed himself to us. And and if you're here this morning, hearing this for the first time or the hundredth, recognize the grace of God and fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's be amazed at the fact that that Jesus came to this earth and that he lived a, a, a perfect life. That he died a substitutionary death and rose again and is seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us to this day. All of that is possible because he came to this earth and took on our flesh. Now you're probably familiar enough with how sermons go uh, that what you're expecting at at this point is is three things that you can do differently because of this passage in, in some sort of alliterated fashion. In the biz, we call that the application portion of the sermon. And, and look, I'm not knocking that. I've done it, and I'll do it again. Uh, but, but what I want for us to take away this morning is just simply one word. What I would like for us to do based on the truth in this passage, is remember. You see, in, in the hustle and bustle of this time of year, don't let the familiar drown out the astonishing. And, and remembering could be as simple as, as singing your favorite Christmas carol. Like some of the great, great ones we sang this morning. You can, you can sing in your car. You can sing around your table. You can, you can sing in the shower. Whatever. But, but use those songs as a way to remember what has taken place in Jesus taking on flesh and, and coming to this earth. Maybe even you need to take time to read the Christmas story. Maybe it would be helpful to read it really slowly, read it out loud in a different translation than you normally read, so that you can consider what you are reading. Because we need to remember and to be encouraged by the fact that the Son, Jesus, took on flesh to show us what God is like. How how amazing is that? But it gets even better. He came to close the gap that exists between God and man. God is, is perfectly holy. And we are far from that. But Jesus was sent to this earth. And he lived with no sin. And, and he, he went to the cross not to die for his own sin. Because he had none. None. He went to the cross to die for the sin of anyone who would place their faith in Him. And and so part of why I don't want to say more than than remember this morning is because we get to partake of communion together. And, And as you know, communion is a meal of remembrance. It even says so on this table in front of us. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, who and what are we remembering? We are remembering Jesus who took on flesh, who lived without sin, yet suffered on the cross as if He did, but then rose again to life because He didn't sin. We're remembering that that by this act, sin has been fully and finally dealt with. We are remembering that there is full forgiveness because of the work of Christ. And and as we have heard this good news proclaimed this morning, we've heard it uh, through words, we also get the visual reminder that is the Lord's table. So so we get to see, in, in, in front of us this morning, we get to see the body of Christ broken for us. We get to see the blood poured out on our behalf for the remission of sin. And, and we get to remember the work of Jesus on our behalf. So if, if you are here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, if, if you are a Christian, this, this meal is a meal of remembrance for you. It's something that you get to partake in. And, and, and it's something that helps us to, to be reminded of, of all it is that, that Christ has done for us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that flesh was broken on our behalf. His blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven. If you are here this morning, though, and you have not submitted to Jesus as Lord, if you would not call yourself a Christian, I I would just ask you, don't, don't partake. Paul says if, if you are eating and drinking without, without taking stock of, of your life, without rightly judging the body, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And we don't want that for you. We want you to know that the judgment that, that we deserve has been taken by the one who came and took on flesh. When Jesus died on the cross, He took the punishment, the penalty, that we deserve for our sin, and He dealt with it fully and finally. There are tables set up around the room. You'll find the elements there. After taking a a moment to remember and to reflect on what is taking place in this time, and, and the work of Christ that we are remembering, go to one of the tables, uh, get the elements, and come back to your seat so that we can partake together. Uh, so, elders, I would invite you now to come and serve us the elements. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you, would, <clears throat> that you would help us to remember. Help us to remember the work of Christ on our behalf. And God, we, we even just confess before you this morning that we have, we have sinned. We've sinned in thought, word, and deed uh, by what we have done, what we have left undone. God, we confess even that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And so we just confess that before you this morning and ask that you would forgive and have mercy on us and help us to walk in your ways. We're so thankful that we can come before you because of your mercy, even though we are even unworthy take the crumbs from your table but we ask that you would uh, help us even to have our faith strengthened this morning as we eat the bread and drink the cup that reminds us of, of what Jesus has done and because you did send your son to redeem us from sin and death and to make us heirs of him in everlasting life we ask God that you would encourage us in this season with that truth And until he shall come again in power and great triumph, may we without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. We are so thankful and ask God that you would be glorified as we partake this morning. Thank you and praise you and we pray this in the name of Jesus with great thanksgiving. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read the words of Paul. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.